Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Hamilton, Ontario, 1946. A headless human torso is discovered by a group of children. A dead baby is found in a suitcase, and a beautiful young woman is sent to prison for murder. But after serving only 11 years of a life sentence, she is released and given a new identity and a whole new life, courtesy of the National Parole Board. And then she simply disappears. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing Evelyn Dick back to life, the irresistible femme fatale who was the central figure in one of the most shocking murder cases in Canadian history. This is Where Are You, Mrs. Dick? Episode 7, The Appeal. Twenty-six-year-old Evelyn Dick had been sentenced to hang for the murder of her husband. And newspaper headlines across North America were quick to announce her fate. Even Time magazine and Newsweek devoted a few columns about the torso girl who had gone too far. While news of her date with the hangman traveled fast, the condemned woman sat alone in a small windowless cell on the third floor of the Barton Street Jail. She was now on death watch, which meant she would be guarded 24 hours a day until the date of her execution. Her only hope now was an appeal. The day after Evelyn was sentenced to hang, Bill Bohozuk and Donald McLean were ushered into the same courthouse. Handcuffed together, they were there to answer to the charge of murdering John Dick. Bohozuk was represented by G. Arthur Martin of Toronto, a well-respected criminal lawyer while Donald McLean was still working with Walter Tucci. Timothy Rigney, who had just prosecuted Evelyn Dick, was representing the Crown. 
After a brief outline of the Crown's case against the two accused, Rigney called many of the same witnesses who had appeared during Evelyn Dick's trial. The jury and the courtroom spectators listened intently to the police evidence and the medical testimony. But many were really hoping to hear what the Crown's star witness had to say. They were waiting for Evelyn Dick to take the stand. Finally, on the second day of the trial, Evelyn was escorted into the courtroom. But her appearance in the witness box didn't last long, when she refused to be sworn and refused to give testimony against either of the accused. Not sure how to proceed, the judge excused her and suggested she think about what she wanted to do after she spoke with her lawyer. The following day, Saturday, October 19th, Evelyn was once again called to the witness stand by the Crown. And, once again, she would not take the oath or give testimony. This put the Crown in a difficult predicament. She was their key witness against Bohozak and McLean, but the judge couldn't compel her to testify. After all, how could you threaten a woman with contempt of court when she had just been sentenced to hang? The two defense lawyers immediately wanted the charges against their clients dismissed. There was no guarantee Evelyn was ever going to testify, and the two men had already been sitting in jail for over seven months. Crown attorney Rigney requested that the judge discharge the jury and delay the trial to the next session of the court, which was the following January. The judge agreed, and the jury was dismissed. A new trial for Bill Bohozik and Donald McLean would have to wait. But the clock was ticking for Evelyn. Her execution date was looming. On November 14th, Evelyn's lawyer, John Sullivan, filed to appeal her murder conviction with the Ontario Court of Appeal. This was her only hope. The case was so high profile that Ontario's Deputy Attorney General, Cecil Snyder, appeared in court with Special Prosecutor Timothy Rigney to oppose the motion for a new trial for Evelyn Dick. But the court granted Evelyn's appeal, and on January 9, 1947, the hearing began at Osgoode Hall in Toronto, in front of Chief Justice Robertson and four other judges. Evelyn had been given a one-month stay of execution, but if her appeal failed, she would go to the gallows on February 7th. She was in the fight for her life, and she needed the best lawyer money could buy. Exactly whose money would be paying for a top lawyer? Well, that's a question for another time. Evelyn's new lawyer was 41-year-old J.J. Robinette, a prominent, well-respected academic lawyer from Toronto. In front of a small courtroom packed with many of his law students, Robinette presented a lengthy defense strategy that focused on the judge from Evelyn's first trial. Robinette claimed that Judge Barlow had made errors in instructing the jury and therefore there had been a serious miscarriage of justice. Robinette also questioned the validity of the numerous statements Evelyn had given to the police. He suggested that Mrs. Dick had not been properly cautioned by the police and therefore the statements were not made voluntarily and as a result were inadmissible as evidence. 
Robinette also listed numerous pieces of evidence that had been revealed during the trial. Since many of the items, such as John Dick's bloodstained shoes, a butcher knife, a 32 caliber revolver, and an axe had been found at Donald McLean's house, how did they have any direct bearing on Evelyn's guilt? In fact, Robinette claimed it was Donald McLean who was guilty. He believed it was Evelyn's father who had murdered John Dick. After two and a half days of arguing the case before the Court of Appeals, Robinette won the appeal. The judgment of the court had been unanimous and a new trial was granted for Evelyn Dick. Knowing this was a high-profile case, Robinette agreed to defend Evelyn at her second trial. At the time, he had no idea how his association with Evelyn Dick and the torso murder would change his entire legal career. With a new trial pending, Evelyn was released from her solitary death cell on the third floor of the Barton Street Jail and was finally allowed visitors. For the first time since she had been arrested 10 months earlier, she was allowed to see her four-year-old daughter, Heather. On February 24, 1947, the new trial of Evelyn Dick, William Bohozik, and Donald McLean, under a joint indictment for the murder of John Dick, opened in Hamilton before the Honorable James McCrew. As he had done in the first trial, Crown Counsel Timothy Rigney requested that Evelyn Dick be tried first and separately from the other two accused. Neither defense lawyers objected, and Bohozuk and McLean were once again removed from the courtroom. Addressing the jurors, Chief Justice McCrew, one of the most respected judges on the bench, warned the 12 men that they must ignore anything they may have heard about the case up to the present. They had a duty to ensure that the accused receive a fair trial. Crown Counsel Rigney also addressed the high degree of media attention the murder trial had received and asked the jurors to dismiss any preconceived ideas or theories they may have about the guilt or innocence of the accused. He then introduced the characters in the case and outlined the series of events related to the murder and dismemberment of John Dick. Rigney called several of the same witnesses from the first trial, and then called a new witness. Francis Bowler was a 19-year-old Canadian Army veteran who claimed he had helped a man and a woman get their car out of some mud on March the 6th, close to where John Dick had been supposedly murdered. Bowler, who was working as a farmhand, described seeing a black car parked on the side of the road close to the farmhouse he was working at. When he went out to the barn, he heard what sounded like three gunshots, but couldn't determine where they had come from. An hour or so later, a man approached him to say his car was stuck in the mud. Bowler agreed to help the man. When they got to the car, Bowler said there was a woman sitting behind the driver's wheel. The witness also described seeing the handle of a revolver sticking out of the woman's purse when he approached the car to speak with her, and seeing part of a man's leg on the floor of the back seat of the car. When asked if that same woman was sitting in the courtroom, Bowler pointed to Evelyn Dick. Liar, Evelyn murmured under her breath as she stared directly at the young man. 
As for the woman's companion, the man who had approached him to help get the car out of the mud, the witness told the court it was Bill Bohozik. Under cross-examination, J.J. Robinette attacked Bowler's testimony and his character. He asked the witness why he hadn't told his story to the police when he first heard about the murder, but instead had waited months. And how much had he read about the case in the newspapers? Robinette then reminded the witness that he had been discharged from the Canadian Army after only six months for a nervous condition, had been convicted of a criminal offence for owning an unregistered gun, could not hold down steady employment, and was separated from his wife. And to add even more doubt about Bowler's character, and therefore his testimony, Robinette called the Chief of Police of Dundas, Ontario. Chief Earl Jack said he had known Bowler for seven years, and the kid did not have a good reputation for telling the truth. Next on the stand was Alexandra McLean, Evelyn's mother, who repeated her earlier testimony. But when cross-examined by J.J. Robinette, Mrs. McLean admitted knowing that her husband Donald owned firearms and ammunition which he kept at the Roslyn Avenue house. She stated that she had never seen a revolver in Evelyn's possession. Robinette also carefully reminded the jury that Mrs. McLean had herself been charged with the murder of John Dick, but those charges had been dropped so she could be a material witness in her daughter's trial. While Robinette seemed to be scoring points with his careful cross-examination of the witnesses, casting doubt about their motivations and truthfulness, one witness seemed to catch him off guard. Raymond Castle, the Hamilton Street Railway superintendent, who had threatened to fire John Dick and Donald McLean if they didn't keep their personal squabbles out of the workplace, confirmed that Donald McLean was at work on the morning and afternoon of March the 6th. Therefore, based on the police timeline of when the murder occurred, McLean could not have killed John Dick. Following a week of witness testimony, the judge held a second in-trial hearing without the jury to determine the admissibility of statements that Evelyn had given to the police. Would the jury get to hear Evelyn's wild and contradictory stories? The answer was no. The Chief Justice ruled that Evelyn's statements were inadmissible and would not be allowed into evidence. This was a huge victory for the defense, but Robinette still needed to convince the jury that his client was not guilty of murder. On March 5th, Evelyn's young, personable lawyer began his closing address to the jury. This was only his second murder trial, but he was determined to win. His arguments were clear and concise. Even if the Crown's evidence was fully accepted, it pointed only to Evelyn being an accessory after the fact in the death of John Dick. And that gentleman, Robinette said, does not constitute murder. And if the jury accepted this view, then the verdict must be not guilty. Robinette then went on to suggest again that Donald McLean was the murderer. Most of the police evidence pointed to him, and it was well known that he hated John Dick. It was McLean who had a motive to kill. 
he needed to make sure John Dick didn't tell their employer that he was stealing from them. Evelyn, on the other hand, had no reason to kill John. She could have just divorced him. Robinette then went on to address the damning testimony of Mrs. McLean, Evelyn's mother, who said Evelyn told her that John Dick was dead two days after his disappearance. Mrs. McLean, said Robinette, is no normal mother, and she is only intent on protecting herself. As for the new witness, young Francis Bowler, who testified he had helped pull Evelyn's car out of the mud after hearing three gunshots, Robinette said it was the most ridiculous testimony he had ever heard in a courtroom, and he called the man an outright liar. In conclusion, Mr. Robinette expressed to the jury that the John Dick murder case had many mysterious elements and questions that still could not be answered. But they must base their verdict only on the evidence as they had heard it. And that verdict should be not guilty. The jury then heard from Crown Prosecutor Rigney and Chief Justice James McRue. In his address, the judge said there was little difficulty in reaching the conclusion that someone had murdered John Dick. The question for the jury to decide was whether the accused was party to the crime. If Evelyn knew of the plan to murder John Dick and did something to bring about his death, then she was indeed guilty of murder. While the jury deliberated, Evelyn Dick found herself sitting in the same dingy prisoner's room down the hall where she had waited during her first trial. But this time was different. There would be no more appeals if the verdict came back guilty. This was the end of the line for Mrs. Dick, and her nerves had finally gotten the better of her. While she waited, she wept, she vomited, she read from her Bible, and she prayed. Five hours after her second trial ended, the jury announced they had reached a verdict. A visibly pale Evelyn was escorted back into a silent courtroom. They'll hang her, a spectator was overheard whispering. It was 5.30pm on March the 6th, one year to the date that John Dick had been murdered. Outside the courthouse, a crowd estimated to be over 6,000 people had gathered to await the fate of Evelyn Dick. Justice McCrew addressed the members of the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict? We have, sir, and we have found the accused not guilty. A collective gasp resonated in the courtroom as all eyes turned to the woman standing in the prisoner's box. According to witnesses, Evelyn Dick appeared almost stunned by the words she had just heard. But then a broad smile appeared on her face and she raised her clasped hands in a thank you gesture towards the jury. Evelyn had escaped her date with the hangman, but she wasn't going home anytime soon she still had to answer for another murder.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. George Bishop reporting. An unprecedented case brought an unprecedented suggestion in the Ontario Court of Appeals yesterday. The court reserved judgment on the Crown's appeal against the acquittal of Mrs. Evelyn Dick on a charge of murdering the torso slaying of her husband, John Dick. Crown counsel W.B. Common suggested that one of the appellate court judges should hand down a dissenting opinion because, said the Crown counsel, a dissenting opinion would permit the case to be sent up to the Supreme Court of Canada. On March 24th, three weeks after her acquittal in the murder of John Dick, Evelyn was back in court on the charges of murdering her infant son, Peter David White McLean. Bill Bohozak and Donald McLean had finally been granted bail after almost a year in custody. They would have to wait for the legal system to finish with Mrs. Dick, but their murder trials would begin directly after the current session. Once again, the Crown was represented by Special Prosecutor Timothy Rigney, while J.J. Robinette continued to represent Mrs. Dick. Rigney's first witness was Evelyn's mother, Alexandra McLean, 
who told the court how she had seen her daughter and newborn grandson in the hospital five days after his birth. She had brought clothing for Evelyn and the infant in a beige suitcase. Then Mrs. McLean was asked to identify the exhibits sitting on a table in front of the jury. As spectators stood to try to catch a glimpse of the morbid items, Mrs. McLean confirmed that the torn and moldy garments were the baby's clothing and the suitcase was the same one that belonged to her daughter. Mrs. McLean was also asked to identify a photograph of Evelyn in a Red Cross uniform and agreed that the cement-encrusted skirt that had been wrapped around the baby was the same skirt in the picture. Mrs. McLean repeated the story she had told the detectives when they discovered the body of the baby in the attic. When Evelyn returned from the hospital, she told her mother that she had given the baby to Children's Aid to be put up for adoption. Mrs. McLean said she believed her daughter, and she never saw her grandson again. Under cross-examination by Robinette, Mrs. McLean told the jury that in preparation for the birth, Evelyn had engaged the services of two doctors, one for herself and another specialist for the baby. Hardly the actions of a woman who planned to kill her own child shortly after its birth, Robinette pointed out. Once again, the skilled defense lawyer was carefully trying to pin the murder onto another member of the McLean household. Wasn't it Donald McLean that was very angry about another illegitimate child, he asked Mrs. McLean. Didn't he forbid the child from coming into the house he owned? Yes, answered Mrs. McLean. Following Mrs. McLean's testimony, the Crown called on the police who had found the suitcase and the two doctors who had attended Evelyn during and after the birth. Next on the witness stand was Hamilton pathologist Dr. Dedman, who described the autopsy he had performed on the mummified remains of the infant. When Robinette tried to suggest that the baby found may have been another pregnancy that had been aborted, Dr. Dedman quickly confirmed that the dead infant was a full-term pregnancy. But due to the decomposition of the remains, he could not confirm the cause of death. Had the infant been strangled to death with the string found wrapped around its neck? Again, due to the body's condition, Dr. Dedman could not confirm. Following the pathologist's testimony, the Crown called Samuel Henson to the stand. He repeated what Evelyn said when she was trying to rent an apartment in the upscale building he owned. She had told him that she was a widow with one child, and the baby she was carrying was already dead, so she would be going to the hospital to have it removed. Did Evelyn's words foretell the fate of her infant son as the Crown was contending? Or was she just a desperate single mother trying to secure a home for herself and her child, suggested Robinette. By noon on the second day of the trial, the Crown said they had completed their evidence. Mr. Robinette called no witnesses, and in his summation to the jury, he described his client as a loving mother to her daughter, Heather. And, he pointed out, it was clear from her actions of hiring two doctors prior to the birth that she wanted the child to live. But there were others who did not. Robinette reminded the jury that Donald McLean did not want the child in his house, 
And what about the father of this baby? Who was he? Was he a prominent Hamiltonian? Perhaps a married man? If so, he would have had a motive for wanting the infant dead. Crown Counsel Rigney also brought up the question of the infant's mysterious father. If he didn't want the baby, perhaps a second illegitimate child was more than Evelyn could handle, and therefore she had decided to get rid of it. Rigney also reminded the jury that at the time of the baby's birth, Evelyn was renting the James Street apartment, so if her father didn't want the baby in his house, she did have another home to go to. In his closing address, Justice LaBelle reminded the jury that the Crown must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the baby died as a result of a criminal act and not from natural causes. But he then speculated, Are children who die from natural causes encased in cement and kept in a locked suitcase? Is an 18-inch long baby stuffed into a 13-inch zippered bag? And what about the cord around the infant's neck? He went on to remind the jury that the accused left the hospital with a healthy newborn and it was never seen alive again. The jury had to consider three possibilities. One, that the child had been killed intentionally, which was murder. Two, that it died without intention, but from criminal negligence, which would be manslaughter. Or three, it died from natural causes. They must consider all of the evidence in what Judge LaBelle called a harrowing case and deliver a just verdict. The jury deliberated for less than five hours. We find the prisoner not guilty of murder, announced the jury foreman, but guilty of manslaughter. Evelyn's star lawyer had saved her from another possible death sentence, but he had not saved her from the reality of spending the rest of her life in prison. But he had one more card to play before sentencing. Robin had asked Justice LaBelle if he could present a medical expert that could speak to Evelyn Dick's emotional and mental state. The judge agreed. The following morning, Mr. Robinette called Dr. Robert Finlinson, a psychiatrist, to the stand. Dr. Finlinson said he had met with Mrs. Dick twice and had given her several standard recognized psychiatric tests. Based on the result of those tests, the doctor described the now 27-year-old Evelyn as having the mental age of a 13-year-old girl. He also labeled her as a psychopathic personality with below-average intelligence. The doctor blamed her mental and emotional disabilities on the volatile family life she had experienced as a child. But he believed that with long-term psychiatric care, she could eventually get better. After Dr. Finlinson's testimony, Mr. Robinette made a strong plea for mercy in his client's sentencing. In his view, Evelyn Dick could be reformed. But Justice LaBelle was not of the same mind and imposed the maximum sentence he was allowed. Evelyn Dick would spend the rest of her natural life in prison. Or would she? On the next episode of Where Are You, Mrs. Dick... 
Now, this may shock you, but believe it or not, in the 1940s infanticide, the death of a child, particularly by the mother when the child is born out of wedlock, that wasn't regarded as a particularly serious crime. A woman who convicted of murdering her own baby typically got six to seven years for it. And there were numerous instances of it. You know, women desperate, left alone, sole provider, uh, you know, the child dies um, either through neglect or through you know, malicious action, and uh, you get six or seven years. Evelyn got life in prison for that baby. Given a life sentence, how will Evelyn survive in federal prison? She was a model prisoner. She worked in the uh, Prison for Women uh, office. Um, people that knew her liked her. Will John Dick's murder ever be solved? There are probably four people that know what happened to John Dick, and none of them ever talked. There's no evidence, right? So everything is, is ultimately speculation. And the most important question, where is Evelyn Dick today? Now, I've heard the term Winnipeg come up around him, but certainly mm-hmm. she never lived in Ontario again. Too notorious. There was a woman named Evelyn McLean who died in a fire up on Mud Street in 1987. And everyone, oh, well, first off, if you were really Evelyn McLean, the last thing you'd be doing is using your real name at that point. And I sincerely doubt she lived anywhere near Hamilton at that point. If she told me this happened in Winnipeg, I'd be far more likely to believe you, or Saskatchewan, or British Columbia or Nova Scotia even. I believe that. Living in Hamilton in 1987? I don't think so. Evelyn, oh Evelyn, it's been a very long time since you went away from here. Your cigarette and big Mrs. Dick is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. The song Evelyn Dick is written and performed by Mark McNeil. A special thank you to Mark McNeil and Brian Morton. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. For more information on this episode and other podcasts, visit us at storyhunterpodcasts.com. fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.